Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club, connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Today is a very special day. In fact, it's a very special episode. It's our 20th episode. And to celebrate that, we thought we'd bring in some heavy artillery. We brought in one of Australia's greatest business icons, Mr. Mark Boris. Mark is a longtime mentor of mine. He's the executive chairman of Yellow Brick Road. He was the founder of Wizard Home Loans. He is the owner of the Mentored Platform and he is Australia's mentor, mentor to all Australian entrepreneurs. We had a brilliant conversation. I learned a lot of things about him and amazing stories that I had never even heard before. So I hope you enjoy um, the conversation. I know I did. Enjoy the show. And we're live. I'm sitting here today with an Australian business icon, someone I'm proud to call my mentor and very much the mentor to all of Australian business, Mr. Mark Boris. How are you today, sir? Yeah, mate. You all right? I'm very good, very good. Excited to, to be doing a, this interview with you. Um, Same here. Mate, I've got to tell you, I was just uh, had a bit of a sneak peek at some of the content and the masterclasses you've got. Um, about to be released for the your platform, the mentored platform, um, and they're wicked. They are so good. That is going to change the game. There's, that doesn't exist at the moment in Australia. It doesn't exist. So it's funny. Like uh, we've been sort of going out there, finding out what our customers and all people follow us, you know, what they're interested in, and uh, and it all comes down to things like sales, digital marketing, you know, building up relationships, like you know, the, how a business runs in terms of people. You know all those sorts of things, and I've I thought of pre-COVID. By the way, we started building this stuff, but as you know, things take a long time to get resolved and sorted and filmed and edited and given. And particularly during the COVID period, like just getting access to these, you know, to all our equipment. Um, but we're ready to release, and uh, I've got some great people, great friends, uh, guys and girls who are paying it forward. Like I'm trying to do it at Mentored, paying forward what I've learned. Mm. And paying it forward to people who want to know how to run their business better or right now how to just survive. Yeah. Yeah, because it, the thing is everyone knows uh, knows you very well for Wizard. Everyone knows you very well for YBR, Yellow Brick Road. And now there's this new incredible platform, Mentored. So, and what's the goal? To create the best mentorship program in the country? Yeah, it's uh, – well, I, I guess there's – our audience is made up of people who – well, the audience I want to talk to. And this might sound a bit ambitious, but it's, to me, to be honest, it's the forgotten people of Australia. Mm. It's the people no one ever talks about, mm. but they lean on and rely upon, and that small is people business. in business yeah. and small business, medium business, just people in business. And and they're just being forgotten. No one wants to talk to them. No one gets up there and defends them. No one actually helps them out. I mean, right now we're in the COVID period and they're talking about there's going to be a private sector-led recovery. Well, what are they doing for the private sector, yeah. the, the business owners? So they're the people I want to talk to. They're the forgotten people in this country, um, both at a political level and at an economic level and at just every level. So I want to talk to them and I want to help them and I want to pay forward to them what I've had the luxury of, that is having some unbelievably great mentors um, question me, push me, cajole me, trick me, uh, encourage me, Etc. to do some, you know, what others would consider pretty good 
outcomes in Australia in terms of you know business and success, I want to pay that forward to the forgotten people. I want to make sure Australia. I, I mean, I'm at an age now where I can say, Daniel, we're. I'm in an age where I want to actually make sure that I leave something behind. Mm. Not just, oh, Mark was really successful in selling Wizard or Yellow Brick Road or wherever it is. I want to leave something behind where Mark actually did something that changed the way things are done for the future and helped his fellow Australians. Sounds pretty lofty. Um, no, that's, that's awesome. What, that's what mentor.com.au is all about. It's about paying forward and leaving a legacy for Australians. Something that, you know, on the, I mean, I was a great, when I was a kid at school, in year 12, I loved poetry. And, I didn't uh, know that about yeah, you. And I used to love reading the poetry of both Keats and Yeats. And, uh, and the things that they often talked about was um, how fleeting life is. You know, life's a short period and the importance of trying to achieve permanence. Now, we know a lot of great artists in the world who have achieved permanence. Um, we know a lot of a, a, a great uh, warriors have left permanence. Um, we know a lot of great religious icons have left permanence. Jesus Christ, Muhammad, you know, in terms of warriors, you know, Alexander the Great, for example, and, you know, there's Darius the Persian, you know, etc. There's, you know, and it sounds egotistical, but how can I leave some permanence behind on the day that I'm dead? I just don't want my kids to remember me. Remember me? I'm not looking for people to hold me up as an icon. I actually want to leave something behind that becomes permanent. That's all. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's what I'm doing at 64 years of age. I love that. That's brilliant. And and uh, as many people know, and we're going to talk about later in the podcast, is uh, you were, I guess, blessed to also have one of Australia's um, uh, best in business as, as your mentor uh, back in the day, which was uh, the man, Kerry Packer. And uh, so we're definitely going to talk about that uh, a bit further down. But I wanted to start with a lot of people actually don't know how you started where you came from, how you got into business. What, what, what about that story? Uh, I guess my, my people always ask me, what, Mark, what was your first experience of business? Um, <clears throat> what That I can remember anyway. So I'm a kid, grew up in the west suburbs of Sydney. I grew up in Punchbowl, went to school in Lakemba. And I did my last two years of school in the school in Bankstown. Um, my mum is Irish Catholic and my dad is Greek. Um, they met here in Australia. My uh, dad's Greek Orthodox, and I, but I became... A, a Catholic because the Irish are pretty, pretty solid on that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, mum was a huge influence in my life in terms of she was a very much uh, – she didn't push me but she was very much a, a shining light for me. Uh, she came from a terrible background and uh, she didn't want to have that repeated in her life so she looked to change the way her children lived their life relative to her. My dad came from Greece which was war-torn when he left – you know, Germany occupied Greece and then they had the civil war in Greece. Dad left during that period. He came here with his five brothers, his dad and his mum. So dad came from abject, absolute abject poverty into Australia and so, and he worked in a factory his whole life. So my dad and my mum, to a large extent, didn't want me to repeat what the same life that they had had. They encouraged me to go to university. My mother drove me to university. I was always seeing my dad in and out of different businesses. I mean, he worked in a factory. That was his daytime job. And then in the evenings, he was always trying out new things, mm. always trying new businesses. And, uh, you know, at any one time, he'd have three or four jobs, including his day job. So, And mum worked as well. And my first and, – and I guess I was never told about these things, but my first experience with being in business was I was probably about 14 years of age, I guess. And uh, – I was watching a show on television in those days. All the movies were on Sunday afternoon, and um, 
and I was watching this show. It was a, like a cowboy sort of movie and uh, this guy had a pipe. I mean, pipes are popular in those days. We're going back a long time. Pipe, pipes are popular in those days, not so much today. And I remember seeing this guy smoking a pipe that it was made out of a corn uh, cob. Mm. And I was a pretty curious kid. Like, And in my front garden, we had these, I don't know what the plant was. I think it was a hydrangea. And I used to cut the hydrangea and I worked out that inside the hydrangea when you dried it out, when it dried out, you could actually get the coat hanger wire and pu push the middle of the hydrangea out and you just leave a nice, like a, a straw made out of timber. <laughs> and uh, so what I did is I, I remember seeing this movie and I, so what I did is I, I got a knife, which mum would have been horrified about at the time, but I trimmed the edges so it was pointy at one end and it was hollow at the other end and it was, you could use it like a straw. And I went and got one of our cricket stumps because you know, everyone played cricket in the paddock behind me. And I cut a piece off the cricket stump and I got a hand drill and I drilled the middle out <laughs> and I drilled a hole in it and I stuck the bit of dried out hydrangea into it and I made myself a pipe. Now, no one in my family smoked um, and I didn't realise it was tobacco. I, I mean, I sort of had a bit of a sense it was tobacco, but I wouldn't know where to buy tobacco. I was like 12, 13, 14, whatever. And in those days, there were no shopping centres. I mean, the local shop, you know, if you want to go shop, there was three or four shops you go down there and shop. And uh, I went down and uh, bought some tea, tea leaves. <laughs> and I put some tea leaves in this pipe and I lit it and I smoked it. And I was just copying what they were doing on this TV show. And it was fun. I didn't know whether it was good for me, bad for me, whatever. Anyway, I took it to school. <laughs> and my mates at school thought it was unreal. And so I said, I'll make you one. One of my good friends, I made him one and I charged him for it. And then I, all the other kids started asking me for them. How, how old were you? How old were you? 12, 13, 14, <laughs> around that territory. And, uh, and, but, the t the, but then I started supplying the tea. Now, I was telling them this is what you put in the pipe. I don't think they knew it was tea. I was bringing in a jar that I took out of the tea thing at home. And, uh, and I was making money out of selling the tea. So I'd set them up with a pipe and then they needed the tea because, you know, there's no point in a pipe if you haven't got something to, to cook in it. But the teachers got onto it and I got in trouble. And um, my mum called me at home. She said, look, you know, I've just been called. What are you doing? You can't be doing that. I, I seem to remember that I was selling for, in those days, you know, two bob. Now, so pounds, shillings and pence left Australia when I, in 67, 68. So I must have been around 11 when <laughs> yeah. I was doing this. And um, and I remember I was at a little school called St John's Lakemba. So at that age, I was either in year seven or year six or seven around that territory. So there you go. That was my first introduction to business. And I thought, wow. This, and I, I remember another kid. He he bought toffees to school and he sold them. So I then got mum to show me how to make toffees. And I started making toffees to school, bringing them to school. And so, you know, I mean those little toffee things were in a little cupcake thing. Yeah. I don't know if you ever little had candy, those. Little candy. Little candy. Yeah. It's just basically sugar. And I did that for a while. I used I mean, to bring them in a tin. It's pretty so, innovative. You basically figured out how to give kids tea without water. Totally. You don't have boiling water yeah, here. Totally. Take and, my and, pipe. And they would just <laughs> hold the pipe there. It was a cool thing to smoke a pipe. Yeah, that's awesome. um, but no tobacco, which and, turned out to be a good idea. And so your parents had quite a profound effect on you. I guess what was the biggest lesson or, or what was a, a great lesson anyway that you took from your mother and a great lesson you've taken from your father? Uh, from my dad. It's nothing they ever told me. It's things I saw them do and or make me do. Um, so from my dad, the thing I saw my dad do is just, he was just a hard worker 
and he was he just never give up give up on anything. Um, I mean, even today, Dad's still alive in his eighties, mid eighties. Um, he still works really hard at home. He does everything. He does the cleaning the house. He cleans the gardens. He climbs the roof. He still paints. He does everything. Um, and he's he's not a whinger. He, nothing's insurmountable. Um, he's not, I wouldn't say he's a risk taker, but he just he has a crack, mm. and, and he just knows the job's going to get done. And that's probably from his upbringing as a kid growing up on a farm in Greece. Yeah. So that um, hard work, hard work, just work it. And you know, like his dad wasn't in the country. His mother was there. His mother had all these little babies and a whole heap of kids all boys and um, all she could do basically was look at care for the kids. So dad had to go and look after himself. So dad is independent, looks after himself, never asks for, expects a handout from anybody. And that's what I saw in my whole life and mm -hmm. worked like a Trojan, like job after job after job. Mum, on the other hand, uh, probably the most significant thing I got from my mother, she dragged me out of school when I finished school and dragged me from the school I was at in Bankstown and dragged me up to uh, the university and made me enrol at university. Um, I would never have enrolled at university if mum hadn't made me. Um, I was lucky I did well in the HSC. I, I wasn't sort of trying to get a score or anything like that. I just happened to do well. I was a pretty good student at school. Um, I was lucky in that regard. Um, but mum made me go to university and, and, uh, and i be frank with you, it wasn't so much what I learned at university, but it's the process I learned about going to a, a university um, in in those days, I wouldn't say it's so important today, but in those days, mm -hmm. um, did you meet good people there? Was that's it, the issue. Was it the network that it kind was of... what I discovered at yeah. university about what I had and what I didn't have, and what other by working hard and coming up with ideas and thoughts and processes could actually get you to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would have stayed around living in where I was living and hanging out with the guys I, I grew up with, and I would never have been introduced to anything that I could discover. Yeah, and I was, you know, people were discovering, uh, teaching me, or showing me. Or they weren't really showing. Me. I was just observing people innovating at university or coming up with ideas and turning that into something. And then the ultimate outcome of that is end up with a really cool car, <laughs> a car that I'd never seen before. They had a really nice house, or they had holidays to places in Europe, which you know or I'd never been overseas, so I, I had no idea. Or isn't yeah, so it amazing though how by having you know, a, a, a specific group uh, around you or, or obviously, you know, I'm, we are a fan of having a great network around you can just so much impact your life. And, and it's what you discover. From yeah, it, can, it can be a positive or it can be a negative. You, you hang around the crowd that isn't, has, doesn't have the same goals as you perhaps. You may not have, achieve your goals. You hang out with a crowd that may be sharing your, your goals and, and I mean, your chances of succeeding just just elevate so much more. One hundred percent. You can in some in some cases, they'll show you things or you'll see things that they're doing that you would never have thought of. Mm. Well, you would never thought you're capable of doing. Yeah. And and it is really is an adventure, it's a discovery. And I mean, I love your business. That that sense of networking is not networking is a funny word. It's not just networking. It's actually seeing what other people are doing, mm. and to some extent, being encouraged by them as to what you're doing too. Sometimes you might be ahead of everybody else. And other people are sort of saying to you, you know what, Dan, you're doing the right thing here. It's really cool what you're doing. And they might not even say that, but you will sense it. Yeah. And that gives you a sense of encouragement. It gives you that just that little bit of firing ability to continue on doing, which is usually really bloody hard. Um, uh, so university was a, a real eye-opener for me and it then got me into the professional environment. And what, what, did, what did you study, law or accounting? Commerce law. Okay. Commerce law. Yeah. So I, and at the University of New South Wales. So I started off as an, in an accounting firm and then I ended up in a law firm. And in both those instances I met 
wonderful clients. I met intriguing business uh, you know, partners, professional partners, intriguing staff members. Um, I had exposure to so many different types of business environments from big business to small business. Um, as your clients? As my clients. Yeah. And, uh, and I witnessed some of the mistakes they made and some of the things they did well. And I, and I saw some of the anxieties they went through and, you know, in those days you just got paid per hour. And to some extent I used to envy these people because, you know, I wanted to be on their side where they're telling me what to do. Uh, but equally I learned a lot by watching them. And uh, it was, it was a just – and I put that down to my mother. Don't mean to go right back to the beginning. That was what I learned from my mother. My mother was smart, like a very smart person and uh, very well read, not educated as such, but very well read. Um, and was determined to change her life, make a difference in her life and, more importantly, her children's lives. And, uh, f you know, f she passed away from motor neuron disease a year, two years ago. But for that, I will never, ever, ever forget. I'm totally indebted to her for exposing me. And that's important. You've got to expose yourself. Mm. You've got to be out there. Put yourself in new si new situations. You've got to talk to people. Meet them. See what there is there for, for you and you've got to give them something back. Mm. That's really important. Start, starting, just starting something. The first new. step. Yeah, that's the first step. Don't and worry no about how many it. steps ahead of you. Don't worry. Like, oh, you know, so many people, I, don't, I guess you see this too, Daniel, but people sit there and they say, where am I going to end with this? But who gives a shit about the end? Yeah. Just make a start. Worry about starting. Because you're going to go up these three steps and you're going to go to yeah. the right and you're going to go that way. You, it's like a zigzag. Yeah. And it's like snakes and ladders, that old game we used to play when I was a kid. And it, currently, uh, sometimes you're going to go down. Yeah. And, you know, like like right now with the COVID, but then we're going to get back on the stairs. We're going to go back up. Mm -hmm. um, but but on the topic of starting, um, how how did you get involved with Wizard? How did that whole thing come about? How was that? That, that wasn't your first company, from what I know. I, I had lots of different businesses, yeah. um, property development businesses. I was in the property market for a long time, doing houseland packages, building apartments, etc. The Wizard business started because um, I was in partnership with a guy. A dear friend, still he's still alive. He's in his eighties now, but uh, and uh, we were doing a development down at uh, Southern Highlands, mm -hmm. and uh, we bought an old school site from the government, which was super superfluous to their needs. So we decided to build some. We had a long settlement on it because it was subject to us getting an approval to build houses on it, and uh, the settlement was on its way, and um, we of course didn't have the money to settle. And generally speaking, that's the typical developer. You have that to go borrow money. Yeah. <laughs> now you put in 10, 15%, 20%, and you borrow the balance. And then we need to borrow the balance, borrow the balance to settle a property, and we need to borrow some more money to develop some houses and the, the infrastructure and the roads and things like that. And um, we used to deal with, in, we used to do quite a bit down there, and we used to deal with a bank called the Rural Bank. And the Rural Bank was a bank that just lent to people in the country makes sense but the rural bank which was owned by the new south wales government at the time decided to change its course course of action and it became called it became the state bank of new south wales it became a like a bank for everybody not just country people regional people and it headquartered itself down here in oxford street in sydney and actually the chairman or the managing director i think he was was nick whitlam um goff whitlam's son and um but they then decided to go more mainstream and uh, they decided they couldn't lend us the money to settle the property. You know, we had like about four weeks to go before the settlement was due and we were getting quite panicky because if we didn't settle, we were going to lose our deposit. 
and the deposit to us was everything. Um, and uh, so I met this guy who was a mortgage broker and, uh, and he, he was introduced to me by one of the young ladies who worked for us in our construction business. And uh, he organised a loan. Uh, we got the loan approved by CBA. It was all sorted. It was pretty you know, seamless. I, I mean, it was fantastic. I couldn't believe how easy he did. I never met a mortgage broker before. And uh, so I went and met him and said, listen, John Simons had this business called Aussie, Sim uh, Aussie Home Loans at the time and Rams was in existence at the time. And I said, mate, you did a really good job. Um, you know, you're pretty good at this. Would you ever consider going and doing what Aussie Home Loans is doing? He said, oh, no, we just like a broke me and my three other partners. We're just brokers and we just do the odd deals. We make pretty good money and we're happy. And I said, listen, tell you what, um, let me buy into your business. Let's change the name. What was the original name? Do you remember? The name was something like uh, uh, Mortgage Acceptance Corporation. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. And they had an office which was all grey. The desks were grey. They used to wear grey clothes. They had grey filing cabinets behind them. It was one, two, three, four of them. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll, I can take you into the Aussie Homelands Territory. Now, I, I, I had an advantage in that I have a master's degree in capital markets. So I understood how Aussie borrowed its money and how Aussie was in a position to lend money without having to rely on the banks. It sort of relied on the banks, but not really. It, it's its own money, so to speak. And um, and I was well acquainted with how that worked. And I but said, right, you had never been I never done in more. <laughs> never done it before. And uh, and they agreed to do it. So they sold me forty percent of the business. Um, and and then I, I said, okay, you run the business, but this is the new business program. We're going to change the name to Wizard Home Loans. Um, they said, what? And I said, yeah, we're going to call ourselves Wizard Home Loans. I went and found a partner who would be the, was a wholesaler, so sat behind us. And every loan we put out was a wizard loan. And they were not a mainstream bank. They were a, another organisation that existed here in Australia. Um, it was a foreign bank. And Wizard was born like that. And then over time, I bought them out completely. I bought everybody out completely. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with 100%. And then I gave some of the, remain, the remaining partners, one of the partners left and the other three partners stayed. And I gave them percentages. I just gifted them percentages. Um, and yeah, that's how Wizard was born. It was uh, an opportunity. I thought we could do what Aussie and Rams were doing. I thought we could do it with a better brand. I did. I decided I didn't want to go and beat up the banks. I, I wasn't interested in bank bashing. Mm -hmm. I thought I'll let Aussie and Rams do that. They can do the bank bashing. They can build the brand. I'm just going to sit on the background and uh, offer a better solution. And, uh, and my better solution was I'm going to open up branches. So Aussie and Rams never had branches. They so had. you found a point of difference. You, point looked difference. At, you looked at the market. You said, what is the best competition doing? So what are the best guys doing? How do I deliver better? Yeah. And the same proposition, but how do I deliver better? Yeah, and that's what you did. So I, and the way I was going to deliver better was I was lucky. At the time, in 1998 and 99, we were going through the tech boom in Australia. And the tech boom was doing something quite interesting in the banking sector. The banks were kept saying that every loan – in the future, will be delivered electronically by online. Mm. This is back in 98, 99. And I knew, because I mean, I'm a, a you know, a, a student of these, this stuff. I mean, I was always reading this stuff. I knew what the banks were actually trying to do was change their fixed costs. Because there was a guy called Brian Johnson who was a, a, 
a banking analyst around the time. And there was another couple of guys from who are now at UBS, Jonathan Watts, another example. Um, they were analysts. And what they were doing is they were analysing the banks and they were putting up recommendations to buy or sell. And, of course, the people who ran the banks were on incentive packages to get stocks. Therefore, they wanted the share price to be as high as possible. Mm. And the way that the analysts were rating the banks was based on their cost-to-income ratio. And they started building a – they built a recommend, recommended platform that said that a bank's cost-to-income ratio should be around 45 to 50%. So, in other words, your, your cost should be 45%. The banks were at like 65%. So the banks are saying, shit, if we want our, these guys to rate us – we need to drop our costs. We've got to drop our costs. Yeah. What's that? What's the most obvious cost you can drop? Is your fixed costs. Which fixed costs? Bank branches. So as the banks were closing branches, I was actually opening branches. Oh, you started opening Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> But I didn't want to fall in the same trap having the cost. So I said, how can I do this without having a cost of my own? So I thought, what I'll do is I'll franchise it. Yeah. So I would give you the opportunity to use my brand. In those days, it was a brand. Mm. Um, you run the show. You run the franchise. I don't charge you. Um, there's no charge for opening up this franchise. Mm-hmm. The, there is a cost associated with it because you've got to go and pay a bond and get it painted up and run it yourself. But that's your cost. I don't bear that cost. And I share with you the revenue from every loan that you set. So I had a variable cost. I had no fixed cost in relation to you other than my how I had to service you. So I didn't have the same problem the banks had. The banks could never do this. Bank of Queensland tried it and they started having a franchise all in Australia, but it didn't work out too well. Why but, is that? Because I guess the lesson of that is, well – do different to your competition, but also when when you there's always a way, right? Well, okay, I want to open up branches. They're closing branches, saving costs. I want to open up branches, have more of a presence because they want to have a presence, and I'm going to do that by by franchising to eliminate the cost of actually doing so. So, I mean, there's always a goal in business, and there's always a way. It's just you just got to unpack it, yeah, and then repack it, finding it. And all I had to do was, I mean, I had a services distribution system, like every disruptor. And it was disruptive, but like every disruptor, you have to be able to distribute your product. And I don't care about how good your online system is today. If you can't fulfill, in other words, you can't get that product delivered to your customer, you're in trouble. It's irrelevant. Totally. So we had to distribute our our, our product. And the only other thing I had to do really well then was build a brand Mm. and make sure we could access the the money overseas. In other words, the money was available and we were lucky. It was a major liquidity period in the world. The world was full of money that needed to be lent and the place – People used to, all around the world, used to love to park their money is in Australian mortgages because they're the safest mm. mortgage product in the world. They're next to cash. They're so safe. Mm. They're, they're nearly AAA rated. So all the money was flooding to your the Money was coming in from everywhere yeah. and they're trying to find, it, find an Australian mortgage to put it in. All I had to do was facilitate that, yeah. say, come to us. We have the distribution. I have the brand and therefore I have people who will come and seek a loan from us. And that was what Kerry liked. That's yeah. why Kerry Packer invested in the business in 1999. And before we get into Kerry, I'd love to hear your description of kind of what you believe a brand is and how someone uh, can create that. Because there's one thing you would identify, okay, this is what our brand stands for, and then there's the creation or, I guess, vocalising what the brand does. How do, you, how do you look at that for your companies? Well, we were – for me, I've got to – I've got to have – there's a number of things I've got to have. The first mm-hmm. thing is I've got to have a message. So, And I've got to have a story. Mm-hmm. So there was a story. And the story was I was a 42-year-old guy from the western suburbs and I was doing ads on television simply dressed like this actually with a, a 
T-shirt and a, underneath a, a V-neck jumper and a pair of jeans, <laughs> yeah. sitting in front of a camera, doing ads on television, saying how I'm taking on the banks. I mean, so there's a story in that. Who is this guy? Mm. What the hell? What does he think he's doing, taking on Commonwealth Bank or Westpac or wherever it happens to be? And so you positioned an enemy kind of thing. It sort was, of. I created yeah. a, a villain. Yeah, a villain. Well, Sorry, I not an enemy. That's I a probably villain. didn't. I didn't need to create the villain. John did that. John Simons. John created mm. – Ozzy created the villain for me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> John came across as – well, John was brilliant at what he built for himself. Like his image and his brand mm. was brilliant. And, you know, we'll save you. Yeah. That, that's such a good slogan. Like, and the way John delivered was brilliant. I do something different. Mm-hmm. So I come across as a slightly bit more, uh, I'm younger than John. So I come about as a little bit more of a lad, um, but respectful. And you know, if they went, they checked out my story, they, they could see I was credentialed. I had the university to stuff to, you know, to back me up. I knew what I was talking about. And then they, and my messaging was, we had a lot of different messaging, but John's was, we'll save you. My one was initially was there is a better way, yeah. So that's how I started, and then then we we changed it around like you know no judgments, just home loans. Yeah. So we were not going to judge you because everyone thought they were getting judged it's in those very, days. Because you're very exposed, you're exposed. You're kind of it's your life saving. It's your biggest asset. Your it's like all my money's there. And also they might say no. Yeah, and I'm yeah. saying no judgment, it's just home loans. It's now, we like could, asking someone out and getting rejected. It's totally. Just that same well, that, well, that feeling of rejection was a big yeah. deal in those days. I mean, I couldn't say that today. I mean, mm-hmm. you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, the regulator wouldn't let you say that. Yeah. But at the time, I could, and it was so. Our messaging: there was a story. There was a guy with a story. There was the messaging was like I just said. There's a better way of doing things because mm-hmm. people didn't like to have to go to the bank and ask for permission. Yeah. I, I had fulfillment, I had the ability to fulfill. So in other words, you can come to my branch or I'll come and see you, whatever you want, mm-hmm. whichever way you want to deal with me. Now, John had the mobile lenders. He was a genius. He built this thing called Mobile Lending Force and they had all these, got their cars with Aussie home loans on the side and they would come to see you. But my research showed me a lot of people didn't want me sending a person out to their home because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're looking Why would at that the, be? The, well, the lenders there the guy seeing the house, having a look at the house, yeah. saying looking around, like uh, yeah. whereas some people liked it, some people didn't like it. So I said, okay, I'll do both. Mm-hmm. You can come to me, or I'll come to you. And I was in those days, commercial tenancies were really cheap because the banks were abandoning commercial tenancies left, right, and centre. And when the bank left, lots of other shops had were, were, relied on the traffic. Correct, the and they went out of business too. So I could get quite good, small, for the know, fifty square yeah. meters. Yeah, correct, yeah. And cheap. And we're yeah. in the we we're, we're never in high high streets. We're always. In the suburbs, so like uh, you know, in broad, broad, broad meadows in 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 Victoria, in Melbourne, um, or at Ashfield in Sydney, or Reesby or Padstow in mm. Sydney. Like we weren't in um, shopping centres like Westfield or something like that. And so you knew, okay, this is our, this is the villain of the story, of the current way of doing something. This is the villain. You created a message, which gives them the alternative option and ideally better option. You were able to fulfil that better option too. And pricing. The pricing was better. Always pricing. You know, we did an. I did some mathematical analysis of this, and sensitivity analysis, and we worked out that in order to get you to take the risk, perceived risk, mm-hmm. of borrowing from Wizard, something called Wizard, as opposed to Commonwealth Bank of Australia, yeah. I had offered my my product to you at quarter of a percent lower, twenty five basis points, for That's you to take the extra risk. push to take the risk. Yeah. If I was less than that, if I was like only – if I was the same price as the banks, you'd probably say, listen, I'd rather, I think I might just go to the bank. Yeah, Thanks with my biggest asset, I'm going to be safe. Yeah, or 
And so, so how did you create then the social proof? I, I mean, the drop in price, of course, yeah, that helps. But there also is that element of you need that social proof, that that proof element that, no, we are legit. We're, we're, we're where you should go. Did so, you create that? Was there a process? No, plan it, yeah, I, well, I wasn't out long enough to create it on my own, but that's where the Packers came in. So They you know, brought that. When Packer came in and bought 50% of my business, yeah. I had the social proof. I, I could pr prove to everybody. I'm with this guy. I'm with this guy. Yeah. Now, he's my guy. Yeah. And uh, no one else in my my market could say that. Yeah. Rams couldn't say it, Aussie couldn't say it. I had the guy. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody in those days, Kerry was much more prominent. You know, we're going back 20 years, much more prominent than most people today would actually realize um, as a business partner. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I do you mean by prominent? Respected, known, Lord, oh, he was just out there. He was yeah. he was the guy, yeah. you know, and uh, you wouldn't muck around with him. He owned a television station for a start and a, you know, a raft of magazines. So, you know, he had power. He was power. Yeah. Media is power, isn't it? Big power. Yeah. Ma massive power. But today media has been broken down by all the other mediums. Mm. Like this is an example of one. But um, what we're doing now is a medium. But he there was only, you know, a few broadcasters around. ABC had no power in those days. They were nothing. Relatively speaking, um, and so how did you meet him? How did that? How did that happen? Well, I, well, the, the, the introduction came through James. So um, again, um, the power of a network. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, so I was uh, on the board of Sydney Roosters, mm -hmm. um, and James was a was on the board of Sydney Roosters. And but I met James through two good friends of mine. One guy called David Gingell, who was James's best man, James Wedding, and mm -hmm. grew up with James. And um, David became the CEO of Channel 9. I was going to say years, that. Why do I know that name? Years to come, yeah. yeah. Um, he wasn't at the time. And um, and then I've, and I, and also Nick Politis, who was the chairman of the Roosters, who's a great friend of mine. And I met James through them. Um, it wasn't like, oh, Mark, meet James. We just happened to be somewhere and he was there and I was there and you know, they said, oh, Mark, meet Salah. It's a very successful successful friendship group there. It, totally. And, but, yeah. but, but equally, I had something he wanted. So... Networking is meaningless unless you do something about it mm. um, and or you, you identify where there's something that you need and it's, it's not a use up, but they need something too. Yeah, you have to bring value. Any, any relationship period needs is reciprocal. It has to be, whether it be a marriage or whether it be a business partnership. Totally. Or, otherwise, it's just a use up. Yeah. And most people are onto it. Exa exactly. They're right. onto it. They exactly know right. you'll use me up, I'm out. See you later. Yeah. And, and, and James, because being James, was everyone's trying to use him up. So he was like like acutely aware of it. Mm. And But what, what it was up to me, Daniel, was, was for me to actually recognise the opportunity um, and and to do it, work it properly. So, And I didn't have to because James put it to me. So... James said to me, look, mate, um, our family, Consolidate CPH, mm. um, the family company, is looking to invest in one of these financial services businesses, either Aussie or Rams. Is that because it was a hot, um, it, it, in, like you said, money was flowing to the industry at that time? It was a hot He recognised that. And, yeah. and they've got this massive platform that can build brands. Yeah, yeah, they can just propel so you. They, correct. And uh, so the deal was he was looking at them, not us. <laughs> And he said, but what do I need to know about these organisations? He just asked me as a mate. He said, you know, like when you buy one of these things, like where are the, where, where are the exceptions, where are the downsides? And I said, well, mate, you've got to be, understand the margins and various other things. I've had conversations with him. And he was a deep thinker, good thinker, very quantitative, very ex extremely, smart extremely guy. smart, quantitative person, extremely smart. Kerry wasn't even in the picture at this stage. And um, 
was, we had a couple of more meetings. We had a few beers. We just went around his place. We met out somewhere like that. And then um, after about like three or four weeks, he said, you know, why don't we just buy part of your business? <laughs> Sunk some beers with the boys uh, next minute. And you I, got said, I said, well, but I'm not for sale. I, I don't really have anything for sale. I hadn't even thought about it. I thought I, I haven't got anything for sale. He said, well, think about it. And I went and said, look, I don't want to sell my business. I said, but like, I'll bring you, if you want to be my partner, come in. That's cool. And uh, he said, okay, we'll do 50-50. So that's sort of how it happened. He, he, it was James's idea, mm. <clears throat> backed up by another guy called Ashok Jacob. Ashok at the time was the CEO of the family business. Ashok, you know, is was was quite a successful fund manager. So it was him and Ashok Jacob and there was about three or four others in the Packer organisation who were also big proponents of them investing their platform, their ability to build a brand and also the power of having them as a partner mm. into a retail business like financial services. And um, so I – and. I, I saw that and I just – I didn't take advantage of it but I acted mm. and I acted quickly. Well, I th- well, I also think that it's incredible to remember just the power – of course, yeah, there's the power of the media and being able to build a brand. But how about what allowed that, which was the power of the relationship? You, know, you just had a, a genuine friendship and then the opportunity was then found because it was there and there was the, already that mutual trust and trust is often – um, the hardest thing to find in in business, you know, hundred percent. And then that, especially for the Packers, because as I said, everybody's yeah. trying to put something to them. Yeah. So, and how he, about the first time you met Kerry? Hey, well, that was scary. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it was very scary. Where was it? Uh, it was down in Park Street in their office, the, the building there in, in Park Street. And uh, so the first time, I met, so I never really met Kerry until after the deal had been done. The three months of due diligence had completed. Um, we renegotiated the whole deal. Um, they were ready to um, move on the deal. In mm-hmm. other words, they were ready to do the deal. Um, everything was prepared, but because it was a fairly big sum, um, and by the way, I didn't get any money out of it. The money went into the business, so it wasn't like I said there was a big chunk of money. But on your end, sorry to interrupt the story, on your end you're thinking, okay, well, the money goes into the business, the business blows up with the brand and gets big with Kerry, and then I know I'm going to win on the sale. Correct. And that was your play. My, my, well, I didn't even so much think about selling either at the end. I mean, what it was going through my head, Daniel, was what is that here's a platform that if I go and spend advertising this brand on their TV station, it'll cost me 20 grand for 30 seconds. Mm. If I do a deal with them, they're going to give it to me at the lowest cost in the marketplace. It might be 12,000 for 30 seconds. So I can basically do two ads for every one. Mm. Um, one, two, I don't, I, right now I don't have the money to spend, they're going to invest the money so I can spend it back with them. Mm-hmm. So they invest the money into us and then we spend it back with them yeah. to reinvest. So perfect for them. Yeah. Um, they gave it to me at what we call most, most favoured nation rate, which is the rate the, the rate card was equal to the rate card that the biggest advertiser in the country would have been paying. So if it was Telstra or Woolworths or something. Oh, and that's how you bought your media. Yeah, so I, bu- yeah. I bought my media at that rate. I didn't have to buy it through a media buyer. I bought it direct. Yeah. So I cut 10% off the media buyers. So they gave um, you money to invest back into them but at a very good rate. And they gave me, and I gave them half the business for that. Yeah. And, and the deal was um, for me and I could lean on them so they gave us cred, mm-hmm. like immediate credibility. Yeah, that's um, that social proof we're talking about. Totally. And, um, you know, from a PR point of view, I mean. It was big. It was huge. And, uh, and also, to be frank with you, I mean, 
Kerry put the pressure on me to, you know, once he invested, <laughs> there was pressure then every every month I mm. met him and uh, every month there was questions asked to me. And I put out a whole playbook. You know my playbook. I put a yeah. playbook out based on the 10 things that Kerry always asked me. Yeah. Like what are the 10 things that every single month, he didn't necessarily ask him in, a, in any particular order, but there was 10 things he hit on every single month about the business and he wanted to know the answers about it. And you, and he remembered what you talked about last month. So he built this discipline into my business, into my head anyway, yeah. about how to, how to run a business as opposed to how to set them up. Just before we get into those lessons, because obviously we want to hear some of them, um, you haven't met Kerry Packer yet. The deal's almost done. You need his final stamp of approval because it's a large sum of money. And so you're walking into his office uh, on Park Street, you said? Park Street, yeah. Take what happened? There. Well, uh, <clears throat> I had my best suit on, of course. Were you nervous? Oh, very nervous. Yeah. And uh, I was waiting for him. He kept me waiting for a couple of hours. Um, I then got in, he, I got invited to his office. Um, he, his invitation to his office was by him. Um, it was sort of fairly gruff. It definitely wasn't inviting. Um, I didn't feel welcome. Um, <laughs> he's not one to be smiling all the time or sort of didn't give that sort of friendly vibe to, to many people. I mean, I got it later on in life, but not at the time. Um, I guess I was just another person passing by and he was going to invest, not going to invest. You know, I mean, that probably happened to him his whole life. Mm. Um, and then I, I got invited to his office and his, his office is quite incredible. I mean, for me, I'd never seen anything like this before in my life. And it's a bit like what we said earlier about going to university. I discovered something all of a sudden. Like, Whoa, is this, is what, this is what the big dog's office actually yeah. looks like. I'm in the lion's den. Like, this is what literally <laughs> in the lion's den because behind me were paintings and photo uh, paintings like probably by prominent artists I wouldn't have known but by by artists of actual lions attacking antelopes and shit like that you know? <laughs> um you know like literally blood everywhere and alligators pulling you know uh, deers or something bisons or whatever it is into the water like it was pretty scary right behind me do you think he had a bit of an intimidation play as to in his arsenal no, or that I, was just look, who he was? Hard, hard to hard to work that out um I didn't know him for long enough to be able to tell you um, because, you know, he died in 2008. But I, my gut feeling is he actually liked it. He liked it. That was something that appealed to him mm. in, his, in his world. And behind him, though, on his, on his shelf was pictures of his family and his, you know, best friend Bruce Gingell and David's father and, um, and uh, but also pictures of people like Bill Gates and, Bill Clinton and people mm. like that too, like like with him, um, you know, because he knew everybody. He was the big guy, and um, uh, he he didn't say much to me when I first met him. Um, when I first went to his office, he um, he sort of plays played a really cool game. Um, I wouldn't do it to anyone because I couldn't carry it. I don't think I'd be able to carry it off. But he sort of walked me into the room, and. He just waited to see how I reacted and responded to nothing. Um, he just stared at you. He just stood there at the beginning and I just stood there. I don't know whether I should sit down or not because um, I went to Catholic school. You don't do what you, you do what you're told. You don't sit down until you're invited to sit down. So I just stood there at attention on the other side of his desk. He then ushered me to sit down. Didn't, didn't say any words. He just had pointed out a seat and the seat was very low relative to the table. And uh, so I felt like I was sort of looking up over the big desk and it was a huge desk. And uh, he sat on this massive big chair and, uh, you know, we had all these paintings around me and um, he then proceeded to take his shoes and socks off. 
put his feet up on the desk, <laughs> which basically meant I own this territory. Yeah. Um, you know, like that, that immediately stamped on me whose territory I was in and made it pretty clear. Um, he lit up a cigarette and he just stared at me. He never said a word this whole time. I don't know how long this went on for. It could have been 10 minutes, but he, sm- he smoked his cigarette and just stared at me as I was sitting on the other side of the table and didn't, he just kept staring and just smoking a cigarette and sort of, it was like he was questioning me without saying anything. He was looking at me, waiting to see what my responses would be. And quite frankly, I didn't, I don't actually know how I came across. I, I don't know whether I looked scared or cool or whatever. I, I definitely didn't smile. I didn't say anything. I, I just sat there. Um, and I thought, well, I'll speak when I'm spoken to. And um, his cigarette, I mean, I, I never, I'll never forget this. It was mesmerising. The cigarette on his, the ash on his cigarette was getting longer and longer and longer and the cigarette part was getting smaller. But somehow he's managed in his really steady hand not to allow that ash to drop off the cigarette. And that was the mesmerising thing about it. It was, I was just staring at this cigarette (laughs) and I was too scared to breathe because I thought if I breathe and I blow the cigarette ash off, he's going to, I don't know what he was going to do to me. I might end up being one of those paintings on the wall. (laughs) And uh, he put the cigarette and he said to me, he said, son, what did you think about the due diligence period? And I said, it was pretty tough. You know, your guys did a good job on me. You got the price down by half. And he said to me, look, I really don't give a shit about all the due diligence, all those experts. He said, I don't care about them. He said, I'm going to do my due diligence and we're going to do it now and I've got three questions for you. And that was my first meeting with Kerry Packer. Um, he was the most disconcerting, wrong-footing person that I've ever met, counterintuitive person I've ever met. I, I had ever met in my time. Rene Rifkin was a little bit similar. Rene was a client of mine. He was a bit similar to Kerry in that regard, like a like a sort of a an obverse thinker. Think he used to think from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, Renee Rifkin's one of Australia's biggest entrepreneurs of back in the day. He definitely was, yeah. um, and you know he, he committed suicide unfortunately. But and Renee had a bad run towards the end. But I can tell you now, he was a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant, but probably too brilliant. Yeah, and and subject to you know ups and downs and depression, all sorts of things, um, as often happens with brilliant people, mental illness. And uh, sorry, I don't want to get off the off the topic with Kerry. What was the what were the three questions? Well, the, the first question, <clears throat> the third question was more of a more of a mission statement. But the, the first question was, he basically wanted to know, he said, what business are you in? And I thought to myself, why would you ask me that question? My business is called Wizard Home Loans. It's pretty obvious I'm in the home loan business. And before I could even say anything to him, and I, I would never have said that, but before I could say anything to him, he just said, don't say fucking home loans. So straight up, I was wrong-footed. Straight up, I, I didn't realise the time, and I thought about it later on, but... He's one of those people who will put you on the wrong foot straight away. And uh, that's the most obvious answer. But he was asking me a question. He already knew the answer he wanted. And the answer was, wasn't what I was thinking. So straight away, he's dealing the cards out to me, putting me in a position where I, whoa, I don't know what's going on here. Mm. I can't, can't count the cards. Well, it sounds like he's constantly trying to see how you act in uncertain territory. Due diligence. Yeah. You know, like I'm not going to speak. See what he does. Well, he's about to invest big my money. He yeah. wants to see how how, strong I, you are. how good I am. Yeah. Can I, can I respond? Yeah. Do I know how to move? Do I wriggle in the seat? Do I get nervous? Um, uh, do I give up easy? And and really, what he was trying to find the question he was trying to ask me find out was did I understand the purpose of my business? What was my business purpose? It wasn't home loans. It's was about helping people out, helping people to 
achieve a dream they made had all their whole life and, and or a holiday home or security by having an investment portfolio. It was about emotional things you're trying to find out. What is your business purpose, the purpose of your business? What business are you in? Number one question. Second question was more about – well, the second question was have you ever failed in business? Well, what did he say your business purpose was? What, what did you you're, guys you're conclude in the, on? You're, you're in the business of people's hopes and dreams. That's what he said? He, told, you, me that. he yeah. told me that. That's he told me that. Um, he said, you're not out there. People are not interested in the interest rate. They're not interested in how long it's going to take to pay the loan off. They're interested in you in the beginning, you helping them achieve the hopes and dreams. In other words, no judgments, just a home loan. Mm. That's where we come up with the strap line. Mm. I'm not going to make a judgment on you. I'm just going to give you a home loan because you're going to go and buy your house. Yeah. And all the imagery that we put in those things was about a family with a home and all that sort of stuff. And the listeners should then ask themselves, despite what you think you do, what business are you in? Totally, 100%. It's an emotion you're satisfying every time. Mm-hmm. It's not about the, the physicality or the, the – it's not a binary thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's about an emotion. There could be four or five emotions you're satisfying. Um, it could be you know, it's lifetime security. It could be, um, you know, just I've never had a roof over my head when I was a kid. We're always moving from house to house. I mean, like, there's a whole number of things and you've got to examine these things. The second question was, have you ever failed in business? Because he's about to invest in my business. And, of course, again, he's counterintuitive. I thought he would want not to he would not want to invest in a business with a businessman who had failed. And I hadn't failed in any businesses. I mean I've made bad investments in property or whatever, shares, but I hadn't failed in running a business. And um, and so I gave him the answer that I thought was most obvious. I said, Well, I've never failed in business. And he said, Well, what use are you going to be to me then? He said, <laughs> You've got no experience in what happens when you get close to failure or when you are failing. How do I know? that you won't know how to respond. He said, you've given me all these assumptions in your modelling, you know, and I built these models up in your modelling. What happens if one of those assumptions doesn't work out, which, by the way, was always the case? Um, Do I know you have the strength of character and the experience to pivot your way through this? And we keep hearing people talk about pivoting. Mm. Pivoting is about having the the intellectual robustness to be able to recognise you've got a problem with the way you're doing business at the moment and then to be able to recognise a solution. And it might only be refinement. It's about getting over your ego. You know, that that requires intellectual robustness. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know, have you got the ability to get over your ego about what you've always been professing and prosecuting? You know, detach yourself from Correct. what currently is happening. Stop worrying about who you are and what mm-hmm. people might think of you. Can you, because he wanted to protect his investment, can, do you have the ability to pivot the business? And but that pivot wasn't even a word in those days. It's a mm. word now, but not those days. But that's was his second question. His third question was basically it was more about he put a challenge to me, and he wasn't know whether I was prepared to be accountable to that to accepting the challenge. So he put a challenge to me, and as I you would expect, I'd say yeah, no worries, I'll do that because I, I you know I'm looking at a big investment coming on in business. I'm not going to say oh no, I'm sorry, Mr. Baker, I don't want your investment coming. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. It was a twenty five million dollar investment. So I'm not going to say, I'm going to say yes to every challenge. He could have asked me to hey, will you go and climb Mount, climb Mount Everest in 3 months I would have said yes. He knows that, right? So he put a challenge to me, a business challenge to me in relation to a strategic idea about acquiring the wholesale funder or an interest in the wholesale funder. And he knew That's I was the people lending you the money. But the people providing me the chunks of money that we then broke down to smaller amounts of money yeah. that we lent to a retail. Yeah. And with the wizard name on the front, and uh, he basically put to us that put to me that that would I be prepared to buy an interest in that? Will both of us be prepared to buy an interest in that? And of course, I said yes. But that was like climbing Mount Everest. 
um, something I'd never done before. This mm. is a big international organisation. And well, you had never done mortgage broking either, and you got into that. So well, I'm all, <laughs> you had a bit I'm, of proof. That but you I'm could one do of those that. guys who will say yes to everything. Yeah, but that's my nature. Yeah. Um, uh, and I said yes, and he was smart. Like he, as I said again, like he's playing. He's three or four steps ahead of me in the chess game. You know, he was, he was setting me up. Mm. He said, okay. He said yes to that. He said, I'll, we'll have a side agreement over and above the current agreement. He said, we'll have a side agreement. That side agreement says, if you don't achieve that in 12 months' time, you give me my money back. So you want to accept the, the, the challenge of climbing Mount Everest? If you don't succeed at that, are you prepared to give me the money back? By the way, you'll have spent half of it by that time. So you're going to have to go find the other half. And if you don't have the $25 million now, how are you going to find $12 million of your own down the track? Largely impossible. Especially back then. Back $12 then. $12 million is big money. Big money. So he put that to me. He said, okay, you're prepared to be accountable. And I said, yes, I'm prepared to be accountable. He did your voice drop? Did your voice, did your throat tighten up when you well, said it? Or were you excited? You're like, yes, last hurdle, I'm going to get <laughs> no, this. No, I didn't. No, I, I didn't feel excited. I, I felt outsmarted. Mm. But I also thought, after it, I thought to myself, that's fair. The guy's putting a lot of money in. Mm. And what he wants to know is can I make this strategic move, which actually was a, was was the right thing to do, a thing I thought about before myself, but not something that was now at the forefront of my thoughts. What he did is, you know, like, you know, we prioritise all our strategic ideas. Yeah. And what we all tend to do is get caught up in the day-to-day stuff. So we get caught up in opening the branches, signing franchisees, making sure the product's right, doing the advertising on television. Today, you know, it's about podcasts and, you know, Instagram and making sure I'm doing all my socials. But what's that one strategic thing that you need to do? Kerry took that one strategic thing and once a month he put it at the top of my list because that was the day I had to get turned up to see him mm-hmm. once a month and go through the ten things. And at, at every month he would ask me, at some stage, how are you going with acquiring that wholesale business or an interest in it? Every single month. And so he kept asking you how you're tracking towards the larger goal, the larger strategy. Or my own demise, that is paying him back in 12 months' time. Yeah. <laughs> so he gave you, this is the good one, this is the bad one. Which one do you want to go at? How far? And how he's, much closer? And he, and he said that to me every time. Because yeah. if you don't, you haven't got there, you haven't got interest, they won't sell, what... Well, you know that in 11 months' time or, you know, after two months, 10 months' time, you've got to pay me that money back. And do you think that by not having an option but to succeed, that heavily drove, uh, that, that, that almost enabled and allowed you to succeed or assisted you in it, doing it, it so? Certainly, it certainly put the pressure on me to make sure I achieved that strategic goal, which I did with like about a week to – like about a week to go, but I, I achieved that strategic goal because, to be honest with you, that was the most profitable part of our business. Now, it would not have been the most profitable part of our business if we didn't have a really good brand, really good distribution for fulfilment because that, re- that that got lots of people. Mm-hmm. But the margin sat in the wholesale bit. Was, so, the, was the most profitable. Yeah, that's where the margin was. I mean, there was less margin in the retail part the margin was in the wholesale part, but the mm-hmm. wholesale part needed the retail to get to get the volume through. Yeah, to, to, to <clears> actually <throat> send the money. Yeah, so he's – and like Kerry knew this. I only found it years later, but Kerry knew this because Channel 9 used to buy its programs from Warner Brothers, mm. the wholesaler. Mm. He was a retailer in Australia. 
but the money was in the wholesale. So he knew the model. It was just a different industry. Just a different industry. Yeah. And he was paying forward to me what he'd experienced as a television person, as a person who bought or sold rather, resold other people's product, which is that's a television model. And so what would he ask you then? We won't go into the 10, um, the ten I, I guess, um, steps or questions that you've, you've kind of thing because um, listeners can find them at mentor.com.au. Um, but what were the questions he was asking you? What were you learning from his meetings? Well, it was probably what I was learning was was more repetition. Um, Kerry believed in repeating the same processes. He was very process driven. He didn't want to get involved in the process, but he was very interested in me involved being involved in the process. So, I mean, a, a good example was he asked me what my business purpose was day one every month. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know has the purpose changed? In other words, not my purpose, but has my customer's purpose changed. Is there, is there a new expectation from the customer? Mm. I mean, is there something new that you should be appealing to? should always be keeping your finger on the pulse of your customer. Correct. It should what, be live. It 100%. Changes. Ringing them up, finding what they like, what they don't like, um, talking to the branches, what are the customers doing. Mm-hmm. Instead of me just providing product to my branches who then go and sell to the customer, I don't dictate what a customer wants. My branches are the people on the ground. They mm-hmm. know. So he wanted to know, Mark, are you visiting the branches? Mm-hmm. Mark, are you calling customers? Mark, do you know what your customers need? Do you know what your branches need? What are they telling you? It's so interesting. And Mark, is your product relevant to the marketplace? So it's about relevancy Mm -hmm. and markets change. Product and services markets change. You have to be live. Business is a living thing. It evolves. It moves. 100%. So that was always, wasn't necessarily the first question. There weren't in any order. I mean, my playbook was broken down into a certain order just to make it easy to roll it out. But he would... That, that would be one of the things he would talk to me every, every time. He'd always talk to me on the topic of funding. Always talk to me on the topic of funding. Do you have enough money to do the strategic things you want to do? And where are you going to get it from? In mm-hmm. other words, how much money have we got left? Mm-hmm. What, how can you manage your way forward? And right now in the COVID period, this is a really important thing. I mean, people got to say, got to sit down and have that hard discussion with themselves as how much money I got in the bank or how much money I can I borrow? How much money, assuming I don't make any money, just make that assumption, do I have enough money to carry me forward for the next six months? Can I do it? Yeah. Just on the topic of, I don't want to make it COVID specific, but it is obviously relevant now. Um, building that strategy and using that to scale, a lot of people are interested in how do I take my business to the next level? Now, obviously, this is a very big topic. We can't really cover it all. But just to make it um, simpler and relevant to any business size, how do you... What do you re- recommend someone do? What What are the first steps towards scaling? Is it Is it understanding your message and the what what your business is? Is it understanding the strategy? Is it both? I mean, what would you? It's both strategic and tactical. Um, <clears throat> the today's different to when I was running the wizard business, but the, the sort of the same principles apply. Just that the mediums change have changed, mm-hmm. and the mediums will continue to change. So, again, you've got to know your message. Um, and the message has got to be relevant to your customer. Not You can't be building the message yourself and thinking, well, I know everything about everybody. Yeah. No. Can't be relevant to you, yeah. it's your customer. Correct. It might be relevant to you because it's relevant to your customer, but you've got to confirm that. Mm-hmm. What does my customer actually want in terms of the product? In other words, what's the purpose of the customer coming to me? What do they want as opposed to what do I think they want? Then how do I transform that into a message? So what is the message that conveys that emotion 
that the customer wants. Mm-hmm. So in the, in, back in the wizard days, there was no judgments, just home loans because customers did not want to be judged. They felt like the banks judged them. They just wanted the home loan. They just wanted to go in there, see the bank manager, get a home loan yep. and buy the home. That's all they cared about. So we come up with the strap line. Our message was no judgments, just home loans. We were confined to just television and radio in those days, newspapers. So we didn't have the ability to put out today like they do today. Um, you can build that messaging through Instagram and all the platforms, Facebook, et cetera. Which is the next step. Find the mediums to share your message. Correct. And you can share and you can actually build on the message so you don't have to just come up with a strap line. Mm-hmm. You can do it in 30 seconds or you can do it on the on your grid for 60 seconds on Instagram or you can do it in your stories or you can do it on IGTV for longer mm-hmm. periods. I think the message for everybody listening is and one of the things that you can build a brand and a proposition much faster today than I built it and for far less money, mm-hmm. but it's the same thing. You're just that you're doing it more often, more mediums, and and for less money. So understand what the message is, what, what's the emotion, how are you going to put that into words and or visuals, work out the mediums you're going to push it through, and if it's not working, understand your data, you know, make sure that you, if you're using Google AdWords or if you're using Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn, make sure that you use the analytics available. Maybe find someone who can give you some additional analytics mm-hmm. if you need to. W- look at what's working and what's not working. Keep repeating it. It's repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And consistency. All the time. You don't stop. 24 hours a day. And then, which is, I guess, that, that strategy lesson from Kerry, from Packer, is always understand why you need to grow and what your strategy is, what the next step is, what what the purpose of you growing is. And, 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 and how do you follow your expenses along with it? When do you spend money? I mean, do you spend money before or ahead of it? Kerry's mm-hmm. always the view you spend money after you're earning the money. Yeah. He said better to backfill than it is to overspend. Yeah. So backfill. In other words, scramble. Yeah. Shit, we've got a lot of inquiry. Scramble. Yeah. Don't worry. Just scramble. Work it out. You know, all work harder. And just to wrap up, I guess what's one final message or one maybe one of the greatest lessons you've learned in business that you could share with obviously our incredible members but all the listeners um, tuning in today? I mean, I don't want to be talking my own book, but I'll be honest with you. It's all very well to start the business up, have a good idea, know how to execute, have the um, intellectual ability and the knowledge and the know-how, have a good team. But unfortunately, you've got to be systemized. You've got to have a structure. You must operate within a structure and that structure must be understood by everyone in the business and everybody must adhere to the structure. And what I'm talking about here is meeting regularly. You must meet once a month. I was lucky I was forced to meet once a month. If he hadn't forced me to, I wouldn't have done it with him. Mm-hmm. But you must, but I understand that was the most important thing. It, on every, at every month, we revisited all the important lessons. Mm-hmm. In detail. In was, detail. Was detail. And we would sit there for hours. Like, you know, four or five hours mm. we would go. And we talk about a whole lot of shit too, like other stuff not relevant but sort of relevant. Yeah. And it broke down the process too. But it was about operating to a structure, having a rhythm to a structure. Like our body operates to a structure. Mm-hmm. Our brain and our heart all works to a structure. Someone brilliant worked out how to put us together. But the operation is about a rhythm. And business has a rhythm. It has a life and a rhythm. 
and you've got to be respectful of that life and that rhythm mm-hmm. and you've got to be looking after it. And every month, every spend a month. day focusing on where are, where do we want to be and how much closer are we to, to Correct. doing that. Correct, and rely on other people. Mm-hmm. Speak to other people. Ask questions. Don't be afraid. You know what? The question you ask that you think you're the dumbest person in the room is, not asking, is the question everybody wants answered. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And there is always someone in the room who's going to share their, their outcome they get because everybody wants to express or pay forward their experience of the same issue mm-hmm. and from that you'll find out the answer. If you don't ask, you're not going to receive. That is it. That's the end of the – that's the end of the um, – uh, at the end of the day, if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. 100%. I mean, uh, d- don't yeah. be afraid because no one knows everything. Um, and I'll, just, I'll tell you something interesting about Kerry. He very rarely told me what to do. All he did was ask questions. That's he was incredible. a great listener. He was, he was a great listener. He made you think and solve it. Correct. He would ask me the question. He couldn't answer it for me. He'd ask me the question and I had to give him the answer. And that's an excellent leadership tip. That's the best mentor you're ever going to find. Someone who questions you yes, and you've got to find the answers. Let's wrap it up there. That was incredible. Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you, guys.